Welcome to One in Five, which takes its name from the one in five college students in the United States who are also parents. In this documentary series, we meet student parents from across the country who are balancing school, work, and full lives while creating a better future for themselves and their families. I'm Pamela Kirkland, a reporter and audio producer and narrator of One in Five. In this episode, we meet Drayton Jackson. Drayton is a bit of an accidental educational policy expert. He's on the school board for his son's district and was student body president at his college. But his path back to the classroom was not linear. It came after eight kids, a move from New York City to Washington State, and a crossroads that required a leap of faith. Reporter Ajua Jimma Brempong has Drayton's story. And a note to listeners, this story contains a reference to suicide. How was your tofu turkey? That's Drayton Jackson. You're a vegetarian? How old? I'm seven. He's chatting with his son, plant-based eater Xavier. And you became a vegetarian when? May 16th. May 16th? Wow. You remember that? Real talk? You was thinking about it? That's what it is? You was thinking about it? All right, all right. So, how was your vegetarian turkey as a child? How was your vegetarian turkey? Good. That's what I said. This is all happening at the dinner table in the aftermath of Thanksgiving 2020. Drayton spent the holiday with just his wife and two sons, but his extended family's pretty big. Well, first marriage, uh, I was in New York, and I have uh, six beautiful daughters. Out of that, everybody's older now. So, um, Takaya, Kamani, Naja, Jana, Egypt, and Jamila. And ages 26 all the way down to 18. Yeah, Jamila will be 18 next month. Then I got two sons uh, with my wife, Naja, now, and out of Washington uh, State. And Denadre is 10 going on 30. Xavier is seven. Actually, Xavier's birthday is in two weeks. So he's eight. He'll be eight and going on 50, actually. He has an older soul. (laughs) But yeah, so eight children all together and divorced once. Drayton lives in Bremerton now, in Kitsap County. It's about an hour-long ferry ride from downtown Seattle. His daughters are in New York and Atlanta, and he says it was tough on everyone when he moved away. But the whole family's pretty tight now. You can hear in his voice that Drayton's close to his young sons, and they've only gotten closer, literally and figuratively, during the pandemic. He and his wife, Naja, have split education duties. He teaches one son, and she teaches the other. Both of them are on unemployment, and in fall 2020, they were also juggling his school. Drayton is studying organized leadership at Olympic College. He spent most of his career managing bars and restaurants at sports stadiums. And his journey back to school began in 2013 when the Seattle Mariners season ended. Once the baseball season is over, it goes from April all the way to October. If they make the playoffs, which Mariners have never made the playoffs <laughs> since I've been here. Um, 
then it stops, right? Right in September or the first week of October. And because I and a lot of us in that hospitality, sports hospitality field, we don't make enough hours. So we don't qualify for unemployment. It was his first full year in Seattle. Eventually, Drayton would start juggling seasons, bouncing from baseball to football, college to professional sports. But that first year, they were stuck. And my wife was like, look, you need to go down to DHSH and let's get some money, which I didn't want to do because of pride. Financially, though, pride was not going to pay the bills. So the family went down to the Department of Social and Health Services, or DSHS. Our appointment was for 9.15. We didn't get seen until 12. So it was a day waste, basically. And when he says our appointment, he means literally everyone. Everybody has to be there. You can't just come on your own. So the whole family is sitting in the waiting room for a good three hours, surrounded by everyone else's whole families doing the exact same thing. Once we got seen, that took about... Uh, about a 45-minute process of him talking to both of us and everything. And then we had to sit outside until he made a suggestion. And then when we came back in, he gave us suggestions of what he thinks we should do in order to receive TANF. The whole system requires people to put their lives on hold while they try to access our fragmented social safety net. But this time, something different happened. And a question was asked that I've never been asked. And the guy said, what do you want to do? What do you, you know, what, what is your goal? It was a rough time financially, but in a way that helped Drayton make up his mind. He told the guy the truth. I would love to just finish school and, you know, work in the career that I'm in, in hospitality, in the, um, you know, sports and entertainment field. The DSHS officer sitting across the table looked at him and said, You need to be back in school. Drayton never saw him again. But that caseworker changed the course of his life. While he'd completed some courses at John Jay College in New York back in the mid-90s, Drayden ultimately left when parenting six kids on top of work and school got to be too much. When he tried again, he hit a roadblock during the application process. I didn't know where to start. I, I went in to do the application, and then, you know, I totally forgot that you have to fill out financial aid and all of that. So that process was daunting to an older person like me coming back into uh, higher education. So I didn't know where to start. I didn't know what to do. And I just ran. One in five college students in America are student parents. But only 25% of community colleges survey their students to identify those with dependent children. That means parents who face disproportionate barriers to education from the application process to course scheduling aren't being tracked through the system. And you can't support students that you can't see. The DSHS worker recommended a program that helped Drayton navigate the financial aid process and get back into the classroom. I had been so removed from school. You're talking about over, oh man, over 15 years <laughs> since you know going to John Jay and then entering back. So computer programming, uh, Blackboard, all of these new things I didn't know about, and this program did that. It walked me through it and put me back in. And I was, and I was a, uh, made the dean's list. And it just, it, bl it blew my mind because I didn't realize how much I wanted to learn again. When he got back into school, Drayton had been worried that he'd be the oldest person in the room and nobody would care about his experience. At times, he'd walk into class and his classmates would assume he was the professor. 
So it was a surprise to him when some of the younger students mounted a campaign for him to become student body president. He was even more surprised when he won. I was arguing points of racism that I saw going on in the school and not knowing that the student body was paying attention to me. In addition to issues of racism, there were changes he fought for that might not have occurred to a student body president who was younger or who didn't have a family. We didn't have night class when I was there. We didn't have classes that went past three o'clock. And those are some of the things that I fought for because being a working parent to try to get to, get done. Like I, I, It took me five years to get a two-year degree. And I'm still trying to finish it up. But it's one of those things where in New York City, we knew we had night classes because so many people in New York City worked. But when I came here, having a five o'clock class wasn't even thought about. He wanted all students to feel like they had a voice and could reach their elected representatives. There was a space for student government officials to work. But if they were going to make it a central location for their classmates, it needed structure. And that's where you know, I came up with, hey, we, if we're going to do this, we got to run it like an office. Some of the other student government officials weren't convinced. But when students started coming in to speak with them early in the morning and well into the evening, the team realized they needed a plan after all. So we set hours, and that set up a beautiful uh, harmony amongst us as cabinet members. And what we did is from 8 a.m. in the morning till 1, we were open, and then we closed to have our time, whatever discussions we had, and then we opened back up and ran, you know, another five to six hours. But in that transition, a lot of us are going to school. But the goal was to have somebody in the office all the time to represent the students. And a lot of times that person was Drayton. He'd pull up with his kids and settle in. Honestly, when the Mariners was not there, I don't think I left that campus because I had the the privilege. <laughs> so the boys would just come in the office. I have to not Xavier sit in the office do some writing and stuff like that because I had office. <laughs> so, and it was just like, I'll, I'll probably get there at seven, right? And leave around seven. He got to know a lot of the students who regularly came by the office. And one of them seemed to spend even more time there than he did. She would always come uh, by the office. Like, she was always there before we opened the door. <laughs> so I think seven. She was there from seven, uh, because I, I started getting to a routine of working out. So I would work out at six after I dropped my son off, work out at six and then, you know, go to the office and try to get some time before we open the doors. And she would always be out in the front. She'd show up every day and fall asleep. It didn't dawn on me until one day we had to close the office early and deal with something. And then she went back to a car and it just bugged me out. Like, oh, and then when I passed the car, I saw all of the stuff in the back and I was like, oh, okay. And, you know, it's hard to ask a student. But when he did ask, he found out that this student was not the only one on campus in her situation. The conversation just led to uh, introducing me to two other students that were. And that just, being an uh, advocate for the homeless, just blew my mind. What I saw on campus was we had students on our own campus that were living out of their cars with their families and going to school. And when I met with uh, Dr. Mitchell, who was the, um, the president of the school at the time, I said, I, I need data on how many homeless students we have, and we didn't have it. We didn't have it. Drayton told the administration that in his experience, no one wants to tell people they're homeless if they can avoid it. So the school put out a blind survey asking students what their needs were, including housing support. The way we worded it was very important. Do you need help finding housing? You know what I'm saying? Because that could be anybody, you know? So that could be somebody that just, uh, hey, I'm looking for a better apartment. And that number was was. Huge. It's more than what uh, I think the administration thought it would be. And that question changed 
how we receive data. And what we found in our school at Olympic College was almost 15 to 16% of our students were homeless. And that was whether they were living and doubling up with a family member, living on a couch, or actually living out of their car. There was a reason that student felt comfortable opening up to Drayton, even though she might have hesitated to share that experience with someone else. I went through a divorce with my wife for over 15 years, and, you know, I just was struggling a lot with child support. When I got child support put on me, living in New York was already expensive, and with child support, it took almost 50% of income away from me with having six daughters, and it just became something hard. And I I wound up becoming homeless uh, for a long time uh, because of not being able to afford an apartment or even a room in New York City, for that matter. So Drayton couch surfed for a while with friends or family members. But after years of that, he realized that he needed to make a change. I kept having this feeling about Washington, but you know, in my head, it was always DC because I could never see myself moving anywhere else outside of uh, you know, New York City. I just kept having this feeling that you know, there's something else for me. And that, that journey just started to take <laughs> a hold of, all right, hey, I'm getting ready to move to DC. And I walked into, uh, Penn Station, uh, no, Grand Central Station. And there was this huge display of Seattle, Washington. And it just spoke to me. But he wasn't making those decisions on his own. He and his second wife, Naja, had just had their first son. And I was already leaving my daughters, and I just, I basically begged her, like, yo, look, if you can, just take this chance with me. Naja said yes. I came out here first and had set everything up. I had a job set up for me here. He'd been working in baseball stadiums in New York, and a regional manager who'd moved to Seattle offered him a job with the Mariners. But then... Just as everything was starting to go, the lady that had me for the job got fired. So we were, we were stuck. Drayton didn't tell Nadja he'd lost the job. He was afraid of losing her, too. So she came out as planned, and he looked for a way to buy some time. We stayed in the hotel for a while because I had enough money, and then all of a sudden, we, we wound up homeless on the streets. Drayton, Naja, and their son, Denadre, went through five months of homelessness. They were sleeping in tents. And that's when Drayton had a breakdown. I tried to commit suicide. I was done. You know, like, it was, it was just too much. He left New York in search of a new start, stability and a place that the family could call their own. Slipping back into homelessness on the streets of Seattle, this time with a young child, was the last straw. I wound up getting um, put into a, uh, uh, a review for mental, mental uh, illness. So they, they had the emergency room and a doctor came in and he just said to me, you know, you need help. That help came when they got into Sally's camp, an indoor tent city run by the Bremerton Salvation Army. A week after their placement, Drayton got a call. It was the guy at the Mariner Stadium who'd taken over for the woman who'd been fired. Did he, by any chance, still want that job with the team? Drayton said yes and started working again. Then the family made it into temporary housing through the local community center. Not long after they moved in, Drayton and Naja's second son, Xavier, was born. As the boys grew old enough for school, Denadre went through Head Start and then entered the Central Kitsap School District. Eventually, After his experience at student body president, Drayton's educational advocacy shifted a little bit closer to home. Initially, I wanted to run for the school board to to 
debate. <laughs> I wanted to debate against uh, racial issues that were going on in the Central Kitsap School District. His son, Denadre, had called one of his teachers racist. She didn't take it well. Her, her conversation with me was, well, I'm not racist, and I go to Africa every year and help poor children in Africa. And that was like, wow, that's your definition of it. Kitsap County is overwhelmingly white, with Black residents making up less than 3% of the population. Drayton realized that there were some basic conversations around race and racism that just weren't happening in the district, and he wanted to change that. I wanted to debate, and I didn't run against anybody. <laughs> I wound up getting on the board and getting elected with 11,000 votes, and it really shocked me because when, once again, you know, you live in poverty, you don't realize that you belong somewhere. And I'm looking and I'm like, dude, do I belong here? I had a lady that knew that I lived, I was, you know, living in poverty or surviving poverty. And she said to me, you know, why would you run for the school board and you're poor? And it, it started, I, like, I started crying because I was just like, wow, like, why not? Like, who represents you? Who represents us? And it was the first time that it shifted in my emotions to say, this is where I'm supposed to be. If you ask him to describe himself, Drayton will tell you he's a helper. But after working on the school board and serving as student body president, he also began to see himself as an advocate. I sat on uh, the Governor Jay Inslee's Poverty Reduction Work Group. And by sitting on that, it was the first time that uh, space was given to people with lived experiences and dealing with services, was able to speak with those people's head of the departments and telling them what the issues were. The Poverty Reduction Work Group was formed in 2017 to develop strategies to reduce poverty in Washington. They aimed to make needed progress in housing, healthcare, employment, and education. Drayton was co-chair of the work group's steering committee, which was composed of folks living in poverty with personal insight into the programs that were on the table. It put us in a position of power of saying, hey, not only do we want our voices heard, but we want to be a part of building this. And sometimes that was a lot for their liaisons from the bigger group to handle. They had to sit and deal with us as an energy. And when you're living in poverty and you're struggling, you want to be heard. So everybody has a story, right? So they had to sit in the room with 22 people that had stories all the time and emotions and feelings. And, you know, sometimes I felt that they, they thought we were yelling at them, which we wasn't. It was the system, but they took it. And they did such a wonderful job on collecting our feelings. Those feelings and insights that the steering committee brought to the table poked serious holes in the data that the governor's team was using. And you start to see the biases. You start to see that it's not really sustainable for success. You start to see that the drop-off numbers are not real numbers. They're numbers that are made and never followed up. So, oh, uh, 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 food stamp rolls dropped by 13%. All right, but where did they go? Drayton and the other members of the steering committee were able to use their experience to highlight the gaps, hold officials accountable, and offer solutions. Towards the end of the process, the broader group of policy experts and bureaucrats came together with the steering committee for a dinner as equals. It was powerful because we were sitting at a table and that was the first time that uh, my side, which is the steering committee, we heard that we are their colleagues. And that touched a lot of them because we're not degreed up. We're not, you know, in positions. We're not, you know, quote unquote scholars, but we're scholars in our 
lived experiences and what we have. And I've watched the tears flow from a lot of them that their voices have never been heard, even in their own house. That when somebody that's sitting across that's the head of a department that we depend on says, hey, you're my colleague in this, in this fight. Through his work on the steering committee, Drayton was asked to participate in a panel on student parents organized by Ascend at the Aspen Institute. Later, he was invited to become a part of the Student Parent Advisor Group for the Aspen Post-Secondary Success for Parents initiative. He brought his knowledge of campus policy to the table and thought about what would have made his own life easier as a student parent. With childcare, for example, Washington's Temporary Assistance for Needy Families Program, or TANF, helps with childcare expenses while you're job hunting. But that support isn't available to older parents who are in school even though they're also working towards greater stability and a better life for their families. The Student Parent Advisor Group helps design a grant that will fund nonprofit, community-based organizations working to support post-secondary students who are raising children. Pre-pandemic, they also gave presentations and speaking engagements. And that's when Drayton started to see himself differently. And I never thought about myself as a student parent or vice versa. I ne- like, it never dawned on me that hey, this goes together. I looked at it separately. So I just was so taken back on the experiences that my other colleagues had that I was going through and that my wife was going through. It's like, you went through that too? Oh my goodness. So so you start to realize how much this wasn't happening in an avenue and a space in higher education. Student parents are more likely to be students of color than they are to be white. They're usually older than non-parents. And their average GPA is actually higher than other students. But it's a struggle to carve out time to stay on top of kids, work, and school. And that's further complicated when you're living in poverty. When Drayton went back to school, he was working at the University of Washington's Husky Stadium during football season. Then when baseball season started, he'd head for the Mariners' ballpark. We're all away from where I worked, so I had to take the boat over to Seattle and that became something that became a struggle for us as a, as a couple that were both going to school. Naja ended up having to put her own studies on hold while Drayton worked to finish his degree. We had to pick and choose because, you know, one being on services uh, with, with, when you were receiving food stamps, both of us couldn't go to school. So one of us had to stay home. That was mandatory at that time. And I don't think what people look at when you're going through this is we don't have study time. Between work, I mean, working all day and being exhausted with there, if it wasn't for my hour ferry ride, that's where I got most of my study time in. And I'll tell you this, what COVID definitely showed me was how much I love being in the library because those, those spaces helped energize me to study. On top of the lack of space and time, parents aren't immune to the emotional ups and downs that all students face. You know, I, I, I down myself a lot when I fail a test. And I, I go through the same thing that any young kid would go through. Is like, you know, I'm stupid. I don't get this. And that frustration, and which leads to depression, you know? So it has been hard. Right now, Drayton is one class away from graduating. It's math, his nemesis. The pandemic means he no longer has a commute or a quiet place to study, which hurt his grades last quarter. So for now, he's withdrawn from math class to focus on helping his kids through school. But even though he's stuck in a holding pattern on his degree, Drayton's studies are having a ripple effect on his family. And I wanted to know more about that. So I asked if he and his wife, Naja, would sit down and talk together about some of the challenges. 
Their sons are in an athletic program run by the Kitsap Admirals basketball team. And the gym there offered a COVID-safe place to record their conversation. They talked about how the roles changed when he went back to school. Drayton is a self-professed house husband, and his return to school meant that Naja had to shoulder all the family responsibilities on top of her own job. She remembered that he would come home from work and immediately study, eat, and go to sleep. When Drayton cracked a joke about not having offered any support, Naja was very quick to agree. But as tough as it was for her, she says she also found it inspiring. When the boys got older, I uh, started thinking about going back to school myself. Seeing you doing it, that kind of pushed me through wanting to go back to school. Financial insecurity has a huge effect on their educational aspirations, especially when it comes to housing. The family is on Section 8 right now. It's twofold, right? It's a gift and it's a curse. My fear is, are we ready to be independent of services? He's not sure, especially if it means they might slide back into homelessness. Drayton told me it took him two years to buy a couch for their new home. When a friend came over and teased him about it, he realized he'd been making a calculation. If they ended up on the streets again, where were they going to put a couch? 17% of college students are experiencing homelessness. That's about one in six, which is consistent with what Drayton says they found at Olympic College. And while there's not great data on how many students living in homelessness are also parents, families with children represent one-third of all people who are homeless. The financial cost of supporting a family puts pressure on the living situations of many student parents. But even with stable housing, Drayton is making a constant set of trade-offs. When I became student body president, the first thing that I said to myself was, I'm not taking more than two classes. Because being the student body president was a class. And that led to time being stretched out where my counterparts would take five or six classes. You know, they didn't have a, a family or anything like that. And I think that people don't understand how hard that is when you do have a family and try to navigate that. Because any time that they, the boys were sick or anything, if my wife, because at the time she, that, you know, she started working, I was done with school. I couldn't go because I had to stay them because I didn't want her to miss a paycheck, you know, and God forbid if one of us got sick, you know, it, 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 it turned everything upside down. So, you know, you, you have to be resilient and you have to put yourself up for the challenges. And those challenges are real. Those are challenges that can break a family, especially if they cascade into financial or housing insecurity. That possibility had been on Drayton's mind since they first moved to Washington. And he asked Naja what had made the difference for her. I, I, so this, I do want to ask this question. I do. Uh, what made you not go back to New York when we went through homelessness? When that time that we was in Bellevue and, you know, we were going to sleep in the park. Because remember, we couldn't find no shelter. What, what, like, what made you stay? That's, I, I, I'll say it that way. <laughs> what made you stay through all of the homelessness? Um, I made me stay was didn't see a weak man. You're still here on earth. Still standing. 
Back at Thanksgiving, Drayton asks his older son, Denadre, what he'd like to see change in the new year. Human beings being destructive, like always destroying things, like cutting down trees. Like, I get that they're trying to live, but like plants are trying to live too. Everything or you just talk about trees? Just trees and plants. Your brother's a vegetarian, all he eats is plants. But trees make air. Trees make air. Okay. I didn't realize it. Wow. I am proud of y'all. I can't lie. I'm proud of y'all. Drayton says that being involved in his kid's school life, and for them to see him as a student as well, is really important to him. One of the greatest times I ever had being a student parent was when my son was accepted into the daycare center that was on school grounds. And I was able to go do him, you know, in the midst of changing class and go wave at him and talk to him through the fence and say how his day was doing. So I think that space is allowing for a two-generational approach of parent and student to be in the same space in higher education. He says that shouldn't be frowned on, but celebrated. What I got a joy out of is, you know, the, the, the school would take them out and put them in these carts. And every now and then I would be blessed to see my son in the cart and to see how happy he was with me carrying my books and going to class. And, you know, he, he had just started learning how to speak. And he would say, going to class? And I'll wave you up. <laughs> that joy was so important to me. So when you talk about that space, that's what that is to me, is allowing for our children to be in that same educational space and for us to be that example for them and for them to see it. Drayton will make his final stand against math once he's able to study and work outside the house again. Post-pandemic, Naja wants to go back and finish her high school diploma. Drayton wants to use his degree to work on both the policy and the stigma that define poverty and homelessness. That's what led him to create the Foundation for Homeless and Poverty Management. He told me he's learned that being a leader is more than just being in charge. It's also learning how to listen, empathize, and trust. And on the other side of math, he wants to use those skills to make Washington State a better place for both generations of family learners. I think people look at it in a bad way when it comes time for people like, hey, well, you shouldn't have had children. I did, yeah, okay. But <laughs> 100% understand that. I know what I should have done. Yeah, but however, I'm here. Drayton's not a person who sees a problem and waits for someone else to fix it. Like he said, he's here. And what drives his work as an advocate is a simple question. How do we make it better? Ajua Jimma Brempong reported this story. Drayton Jackson is also the founder of the Family Day Foundation, which takes a two-generation approach to provide families with low incomes or that are experiencing homelessness an opportunity to attend family-oriented events that they otherwise could not afford. You can connect with them on Facebook. Thank you for listening. One in Five is produced by Lantigua Williams & Co. and presented by Ascend at the Aspen Institute, the national hub for breakthrough ideas and collaborations that move children and their parents toward educational success and economic security. To learn more about student parents and resources for them, visit ascend.aspeninstitute.org and follow at Aspen Ascend on Twitter. Virginia Laura edited this episode. 
Sound design and mixing by Michael Aquino. Alexis Williams is the Ascend producer on the show. Cedric Wilson is our lead producer. Our theme song is Ascenders by Kojin Tashiro, who also contributed to mixing. Sarah McClure, Ryan Katz, and Erica Hellerstein fact-checked the series. I'm Pamela Kirkland. Subscribe to One in Five on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.